Hey guys, on today's episode of the show, we had on Isaac Carr. He's a small business attorney from Indiana. We had him live in person to talk all things, you know, entrepreneurship, client relationship, value-based. We talked about uh, how do you go from zero to one million, one to five million. We talked about small business acquisition, you know, both from the buy and the sell side. We talked a little bit about seller financing and how you guys, especially now with where interest rates are at, how you guys can structure some of your deals. Uh, there's going to be 10 to 12 million small businesses that are going to be up for sale in the next five years. And I think we all should be getting our hands on a little of these. And so understanding deal analysis, understanding seller financing, understanding commercial real estate, I think is super important. We also touched on commercial real estate. So if you guys have questions about the pod, uh, you know, feel free to reach out to me. We will see you guys in the episode. Hey guys, before we get into the episode today, I really want to shout out my Facebook group, Tax Strategies for Real Estate Investors. So we have over 5,000 real estate investors in this group from all walks of life. We have long-term rentals, multifamily, midterm rentals, short-term rentals, commercial properties, syndications, and everything in between. We have people that are co-hosting in there. We have people that are property managing in there. So make sure to join today because we talk about all sorts of things between tax strategies and real estate management, portfolio management, and absolutely everything you can imagine. So if you have questions for me, this is the easiest way to get access to me is to join this group and ask your question. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Learn Like a CPA show. I'm your host, Ryan, today. We have a special guest here, my friend. Could you introduce yourself? Give us a little of your background. Yeah, of course. Uh, so my name is Isaac Carr. Uh, I have my Juris Doctorate and my Master's of Business Administration. Uh, really, I'm a business attorney with CCSK Law out of Valparaiso. Um, but we work within the entire region and uh, my entire clientele is businesses and business owners. That's everybody I focus on. I have my uh, commercial real estate license as well for Indiana and for Illinois. Uh, and uh, this, I love it. I love it. It's uh, everything that I do is to work with these businesses to help them scale, grow. I'm transactional in that. So I, I love focusing on the systems. So one of the things you told me um, kind of off air was your your background and your experience. So yeah. you got out of school and you went straight into this. Jumped right in. And so you went right into, you were just a solopreneur at first? You just, yeah. Okay. For the first year, it, there's this period of time after you take the bar and then actually learning about you pass the bar and then getting sworn in mm -hmm. where you have to eat. It's a crazy thing. And so what I had to do was I actually ended up getting, I took the bar and then like two weeks later, I took the life, health and disability insurance exam. Hmm. And so there was a point in time where I was actually funding the law firm with my insurance. And so the proceeds from being able to go and put life insurance. And I learned a lot about sales, learned a lot about, you know, funding by sell agreements and, and the, the necessary aspects of life and disability insurance and how that plays into business because my target was businesses at that point. But then, the, but then the, the law firm got started. I was a business and estate planning attorney. Uh, and, then, uh, and then I met my partner, uh, R.G. Skadberg, and uh, we had talked for about a year, actually, about what it would be like to start up a firm while I was running this firm. And uh, I realized I didn't do estate planning. That guy did estate planning, and I'll tell you, mm -hmm. man, he kills it. So now, from that point on, I focus entirely on businesses. And uh, can you give us a little bit more about that, I guess that zero to the first two years of what, so you, what was your initial capital contribution into your business? <laughs> uh, other than all my life and everything, I was yeah. single at the time. So, uh, you know, now I've got a beautiful wife, three kids, I love it. Uh, but at the time, yeah, I was by myself. And so uh, I jumped ahead in and spent all of my time there 
any penny that wasn't used towards me investing in, in, in residential real estate at the time, uh, mm. if it wasn't investing into real estate or into, you know, eating, it went back into the firm. Right. Marketing, right? Gas for getting to wherever I needed to go. Paying for mentorship. Mm. I mean, I poured deep. I didn't make really any money because I put so much into mentorship because I jumped head deep into it, but I still wanted to hold that principle of doing it the right way. I got to go to people who know how to do it the right way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one thing I want to get into. So those first couple of years, because you mentioned that you were buying properties, how how difficult was getting the financing on those, especially being like newly self-employed without a W-2? It was impossible without a, uh, without a co-signer. Hmm. I, I was blessed to have um, someone who could co-sign for that. Uh, and that, that, that was everything because while you're in your first two years of starting a business, no bank, no traditional no. financing is going to work. Right. So you have to either go private investor or get a co-signer. Yeah. And in that instance, I had to get a co-signer. I had to do, I had to do, um, like DSCR, like investment loans, where it's based yep. on the property's ability rather than you, you know, you still had to have cash in the bank and reserves, but like, yeah, your first two years, you know, this is what I tell like people in my um, tax academy program. You're really looking at like three years between when you start a business and when you're able to get like traditional conventional financing because yeah. you have to have two years of tax returns and they have to be filed, which, you know, depending on how quickly you can get that over, it's like you need two full years of business and then you have to wait until the April yep. after to get that. So it's like you're really talking about two and a half years before you're actually able to use that to get like conventional or primary like home loans. Yep. Uh, another thing that you said there is, and I just listened to a podcast. It was either yesterday or the day before, but it was um, Alex Hermosi. He talks a lot about like learning. You you either get paid by you either learn or you earn, right? So mm. you either learn something or you earn. And what he was talking about how it's like, especially like you were like starting off. It actually makes a lot more sense to pour that money into knowledge and education and mentorship than it does to you know take it and and do something with it else that's not funding your ability because all these like skills and traits that we learn, especially through mentorship. Mm. I know I can't even actually, before I walked in here, I was talking to somebody else and I said, if I could write like a five figure check to learn everything that I've learned in the last year, I, I would do it in a heartbeat because I would be so far ahead of where I am now. If I would have just learned everything the last year, a year ago, yeah. uh, there is, um, there, there is always a question though, of could I have appreciated it? Could mm. I have appreciated yeah. what was being told to me at that time? I think about when I was younger and I had a lot of great people pour into me that I, that frankly, I didn't have the respect for it yeah. uh, because I hadn't cut my teeth in that way. Now, I would love to say that I would have had to have somebody pour that into me and take that seriously and then run with it. But until I got hit upside the head a few times, sometimes that's what it takes. And, and us as entrepreneurs, we're hard, we're driven, we're focused, but sometimes, you know, we might ignore this this slight one degree turn that's like hey somebody's just trying to nudge you and you're like oh i'm already running but that one degree can change everything and so being open to that is huge that's literally what happened to me <laughs> really like i had a guy when i went full-time in my business last year so i've been full-time in business for uh, 16 months now so all right i literally had a guy that told me all right i see what you're doing here but i would just critique it a little bit yeah. and i didn't listen and I feel like if I would have listened, I would have I would be way more ahead, way more successful. Like if I would have just listened to that. But like you said, I didn't appreciate it for what it was at the time because I I guess I had blinders on essentially. But I even if it was given to me, I, I may not have been appreciative of it. So <laughs> it takes a while to to learn how to be appreciative of something. So you, you either make money by learning or earning some sort of skill or trait. Um, so talk a little bit about like the types of clients that you work with now. Yeah. Day to day. 
Uh, most certainly. So uh, my target market is, you know, you have businesses that their revenue should be somewhere between a million to 10 million. I, I've really enjoyed working as we've moved uh, from the 10 to $25 million mark on some businesses, but that's few uh, for a lot of them. Uh, these business owners should be already they have the success. They're 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 paying themselves six figures. You know they're they're doing well in the business, but they're hitting they're hitting a cap. It's like mm. a governor, right? That just keeps like uh, they just can't seem to break that. And the thing that they need they need it they need a team. They need to expand. They've built this thing on their own or just a small group of people. And it's like it's time to build out more. You need to have systems in place, right? That can support the expansion. How do you duplicate yourself? It can't just be you carrying this whole thing anymore. You have to build up a team and you have to build in systems that can duplicate what you've already shown is successful. It's time to go to the next level. Yeah, I, I think for me personally, that's been one of the hardest things that I've done or that to do is because a lot of my a lot of my firm and a lot of my um, business is built off my brand as me. Mm. Like people know me, but they don't know my firm. You know, so it's like going to Ryan, but not like his company. Yeah. And so it's been so hard to kind of like delegate work out to my employees to be like, hey, look, I got this guy. His name's Andy. Yeah. He, he He's a CPA too. He yeah. does exactly what I do. It's just like, he's a little different. You know, they don't want that. They want to work with you as a business owner or the brand. And that's been the hardest thing for me is like, actually scaling and getting out of my business and not having to work in the day to day as much as being just kind of like the, you know, the crew leader, if you will, of just yep. overseeing. Um, what are some of the, I guess we'll, we'll start with like, what are some of the biggest mistakes like small businesses, you know, in that, let's say zero to $1 million range make, or that one to $5 million range do you th see make? The people who don't get it oftentimes it's because of pride. Mm. Pride becomes such a big thing. It's about them and their ego. And that's self-limiting, right? There is certainly benefit towards putting your face out there, right? And, and getting yourself out there. But I like to almost think about it as if your business is this beautiful painting that's kind of been hit in the back room. And it's like, yeah, you got to bring that painting out and you have to be the voice for that painting. You have yeah. to, but your attention should be drawing it back to the painting. So when people start talking about you, be like, hey, let's talk about this though. Yeah. Right. So you still have to put your face out there. You still have to put your voice out there. You still have to step out there. That is personal branding. It's super important. But recognize it's not about you. Right. If you're trying to build something bigger than yourself, it can't be about you. Mm. And so pride is one of the biggest things that, that oftentimes, no, I'm going to keep doing this on my own. I'm going to keep micromanaging or I'm going to keep taking over these things. And at that way, you're, you're, again, your vision becomes narrowed and it becomes around you and not about the goals you're trying to accomplish or about the people you're trying to raise up and grow. And your people know that. Your people do. Mm -hmm. So that pride, I think, was one of the biggest things that gets in the way of people being able to grow. Yeah. So that's like a really... I would say that's almost like one of those intangibles where it's like it's extremely hard to put a dollar value on like what that can mean to a company or a business. Yeah. What are some of the like transactional things, you know, entity formation or way that oh, people yeah. structure contracts that you see people make mistakes? No, I, I love that question. So there is a balance between risk and reward where mm -hmm. it's two sides of the same coin. And so you take both of these and measure. Uh, the first thing that I always look at that says this is going to be the most successful thing in your business, but also uh, the most risky is your people. Mm. Filtering out to get the right people, right? And in part, trusting your gut if something tells you you're wrong, you know, and then listening to the right people and growing out that team. That's going to be, you know, you can invest the 
as much as you can to really grow your people. And that's where you're going to find your most reward. But on the other side, uh, that's where your biggest risk is. So yeah. you got to make sure you're filtering them correctly. The next thing is to say, well, you need systems in place. Systems are procedures. And I'm not talking about that policy handbook you get offline that has a, like 100 pages of just junk. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's crap. It's going to be a waste of time. If it's not tangible, if it's not applicable to your business, what has made your business successful? Write it down and teach it to your people so that they can take over this responsibility. Learn how to delegate it. And mm. that's a system, but it should then be reflected in some type of piece of paper, oftentimes contracts, Yeah. right? Uh, a, a handbook not, isn't necessarily always a contract. It can be, but you know, your employment agreement should have that reflected. If you have partners, operating agreement for the LLC, yeah. right? Or whatever type of agreement you have, this structure should be written down so that you have something that you can use over and over again especially if you form entities, right? Yeah. If you form an entity, you want to make sure that you have uh, this, this piece of paper because you might have several entities. If you do real estate investing, you set up several entities. Your holding companies should be a, you should have a naming strategy. You should have uh, the type of operating agreement that you can use over and over again. It's getting the system put in place so it can be duplicated and built up. That, that's huge. And then finally, record keeping. You, you got to keep your records on things. And, and that's, it's going to help prevent against liability and all that, but it also helps with your data when yeah. you do data analysis to say, who is my target market? I found out my target market. I was able to tell you my target market because I kept track of my successful clients. And I did an analysis and I said, hey, here's my seven best clients. What do they have in common? That's what they had in common. I also learned they don't have social media. None of them. I don't think one guy had a Facebook account or something like that. And I was like, well, then social media ads is not the place for me to be. How do you reach them? Yeah. Yeah. And it's by going and getting referrals. It's by building the relationships and whatnot. That's the best way to really build up. So there's so much you can learn. So when you're talking about the, the biggest things that you can do versus the hindrances, it's not taking time on your systems, which includes corporate structuring and contracts, and also investing into your people through delegation, which is going to require systems. Yeah. So uh, one of the things I, I learned in school is like that principal and agent theory, like who has the right to actually sign into a legal binding contract, right? Yeah. Is it, you know, if I have an employee that's a CPA, are they able to go transact business on my behalf and represent my firm, right? It's like, you know, that goes back into state law, goes into like, you yep. know, but I, you know, I have an employee in Wisconsin or California, are they able to transact business on my behalf? And that all, you know, that all needs to be really structured and outlined, I, I feel like in your, um, your employee contracts, your handbooks or whatever, because Otherwise, you could really, and you're not really thinking of that. Um, even same thing with my Airbnbs. You know, can my can my cleaner that I pay hourly mm. go transact with somebody? You know, she's let's say she shows up to clean the house. Hey, we want to stay an extra two days. Is that okay? Does she have the permission to? You know, that's things that I question. Right? It's like, does she? You know, do I give her the authority to actually go and transact that on my behalf? You know, another thing I think what's special about you is it doesn't seem like you're just that an attorney that people know, it seems like you actually have your hands in a lot of people's, you know, operations and businesses to tell them like, Hey, here's what you're doing. And I think you could kind of restructure this a little bit. I mean, I think you're exceptional. And I think that a lot of, I see the same way in my, in the clients that I work with, because, you know, I don't just help them from a tax strategy perspective, but as an actual real estate owner and like other business owner, yeah. I'm saying, well, you know, why are you doing things this way? You should really think about maybe doing something the other way, even if I'm not getting paid to say that, I feel like I bring value to the table that's non-transactional relationship. Wow. I, I could see that. And in, in when I was uh, kind of looking up your podcast and, and just listening to the way that you speak, uh, you could tell that there's an undertone of, of not just the wisdom from, you know, 
it, not knowledge from reading books, but rather wisdom from relationship and actually investing into people. You could tell you have real stories because you've really helped people. And it's not just some, you know, uh, fake um, mirage of, of you working with people in the business or throwing out things that you've, you've read in a book. Rather, you're saying, no, there's got to be something tangible, something practical to it. That dollar bill is a physical dollar bill. I mean, not these days, but it's, it's something real. Yeah. So what, what do, how do we get to that? How do we get to the, to the main point of that? And you look behind that dollar bill to say, well, what, what all did it take to reach that point? And, and that's what I love about your, you know, everything that you've been promoting. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, one of the things, a lot of people in real estate, the biggest question is, is, is like, how do I leave you know, my W-2 job that I don't like, that I hate my boss or yeah. whatever, I wanna spend more time with my kids, but really it's, it's that, that scaling part. So it's like, okay, I've got, I've got a couple of rentals now, I think I'm doing well, how do I scale? You know, for a lot of people, the scaling just, they don't have enough time. Some people it's capital. Um, mm -hmm. Some people don't have the experience or just kinda how you talked about, like the knowledge to know that they can actually do it. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the things that you see like clients when they go from that 1 million to 5 million or that 5 to 10 million, like how do they scale? How do they get there? Uh, most certainly. Well, I'll tell you, there's a, there's a point usually about the two year mark that I see that they have to make that commitment to either jump or not. Mm. It's usually about, to get off the ladder. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I see it over and over. Two year mark. Just around that two year mark where they have to say, where they come to a point where their, their time is being pushed mm. because of the, the side stuff that they've been doing. And it's saying, I, do I want to keep this side or is it time to make that jump? And there's that gap. That's literally me right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, and you see that gap and it's like, that's a, that's a long way down. That's a big jump. And that is entrepreneurism. Entrepreneurism yeah. isn't good ideas. It's the ability to take the risk on those ideas to make them something or fall and learn and get back up. Right. Yeah. And then keep going. Perseverance. The number one trait of a successful entrepreneur is perseverance. And so your ability to not never fall, but to fall and get back up, mm -hmm. right? And I think Tony Robbins once said that uh, there's not a millionaire, a multimillionaire out there that hasn't lost a million dollars. Ooh. Right? Like, it's part of it. That's, That's part tough. of the risk. Yeah. yeah. You have to understand that, that taking the risk out there. And you want to be wise about it. I'm, I'm not against, I'm not saying people need to do what I did, just jump right in right yeah. afterwards. You know, because entrepreneurism can be like a, um, it can be like facing a brick wall to get to your goal. And you can bang your head for a couple of years to get through that wall, or you can save up enough money, buy a sledgehammer and bust through it and keep going. Mm. I decided to bang my head on it. And I learned a lot, right? But the idea of being able to make sure that you have a sound strategy and get around a network of people that know more than you is huge. Yeah. You talked about it earlier, like investing into the knowledge to be poured into you. Right. And, and then and then taking that seriously and saying, OK, here's somebody with a track record. Here's somebody who's done it. What would that take? And then investing into that, because that's going to be that's going to be huge. So when people want to get from that one million to five, look who you're surrounding yourself with. I love that Danzel Washington, when he talks about uh, uh, saying, you know, if you if you want to be wealthy, you know, you surround yourself with six wealthy people, you will be the seventh. Yeah. Right. And similarly, then he went Alcohol to his extra. Yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No matter yeah. who you start, surround yourself, that that is huge is to is to surround yourself. And then but it's not just about showing up that, you know, they say that's half the battle. But yeah, show up. But then then invest. Be willing to take that risk. Take that step out there. Yeah, you want to do it with some wisdom. Mm -hmm. And there's different strategies you can do that with because obviously you're going to need capital in some way. If you don't have that saved up, you might need to save it up or you might need to find some type of partnership, which is real dangerous 
right? But you can find a, either somebody who's actually going to be invest equity investment, which sometimes is the most expensive type of capital you can ever get, mm. is where somebody invests in your business. Now they own a part of it. And now when you scale it, they're getting all the upside with you. So alternatively, you know, sometimes you can go get an SBA loan, which the government's willing to, you know, supplement that. So a bank, uh, and you want to make sure you have a preferred SBA lender, go to the preferred SBA lender, which means that they uh, know what they're talking about. Yeah. Right? There's some people who say they do SBA, but really the guy who just retired did SBA and now the bank has no knowledge of it. Sure. Come across that. So, you know, go to, go get an SBA preferred lender and be able to have a co-signer and say, look, I need $50,000. I will give you $5,000 after one year if you co-sign on this. Literally, that investor now has put out $0. They put down their name. Mm. And so now you're not asking them for capital. You're asking them for their signature. And now they're, they should be smart enough to recognize. And I said $50,000 because that's, the, that's, the, the, that's the, called an SBA small loan. Sure. Right? A small SBA micro loan is what they call that. And that is... $50,000. Okay, 50, you can do a lot with 50000 as a start on certain things. If you have some capital of yourself already, but you're like, I need this extra pushover, go get somebody. Don't give them equity, right? And don't even take a loan. Don't ask them for money. Go ask them for a signature. Mm. And it's going to be way easier and way more tangible. And at that point, then go through the year, make your investment, pay them the five grand. Yeah, my finance professor always said that is cheaper than equity. Yeah, it is. It is. It's more of an obligation. It's more of a commitment yeah. because an equity means that they could lose that 50,000. So if you go and I ask, if I come and ask you for 50,000 in my business or 500,000 in my business, right? At that point, then you could lose it all, but you know the risk that you're taking on. Yeah. Right. Versus me going asking for that loan, there's more commitment. If I don't pay, you probably ask me for a personal guarantee or to secure that collateral. Contractual. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things you said was I'll say two things. So, I always, we always, especially in, in uh, college sports, we always learn more by losing. Mm. So if we lost, like it was, it was tough in the locker room. It was like, why did we lose? Okay, here's these things. You know, this didn't go right. This went wrong, whatever. This did go right, but whatever. You always learn more in failure than you ever will in like winning and success. Because when you're, when you're winning and you're successful, it's like you don't see the things that you don't see. Because it's just like, you know, nobody's ever tired if they're making like, lots of money per month it's like when you're not making money and you're not successful then you're like looking at yourself as like what am i doing wrong yeah another thing you said too is those business owners when they go to that one to five million it's like you said after that two-year mark it's like they have to figure out what is working and what is but what is actually a distraction to them so like me you know me and peter all, all the time talk about like what is that lady in the red dress where it's something mm. where it's oh it's it's quick cash or it's this little distraction that yeah you can make some money here but it's not aligned with your long-term goal and your vision. So, you know, one of the things for me is like, I'll, you know, I want to take other C, you know, I want to take other CPAs that are in their corporate jobs and teach them how to create an online accounting firm based brand driven that they can get out of their nine to five job and they can work with people they want. But, you know, is that a distraction to my main goal of wanting, you know, really to work direct to taxpayer, direct to consumer? So it's like understanding as a business owner, what are those things that are kind of like quick, almost quick cash type of grabs? And then what is actually aligned with my long-term vision well that's good um w so one of the things that's become really popular and i think it's actually funny because i want to say it was last late summer early fall last year i remember i heard rumblings of seller financing i heard rumblings of like oh you know interest rates are taking up you know a lot of people have equity in their properties we're probably going to see some sort of seller financing and I, I remember commenting on the tweet back in like, I think it was October. Yeah. I was like, I was like, chill out guys, we're not there yet. <laughs> and then I recently, I think it was like 
end of March or middle of March, I went back to that tweet and I was like, oh, update, sorry, it's <laughs> happening. Because like every single deal that I've seen people do, not on the residential real estate side, but like small business, you know, in that time I closed on two campgrounds, mm. you know, RV, I've, I bought a campground, I bought an RV park, and I'm buying another short-term rental in Miami. We're using seller financing for all of them. Wow. Nice. So in this quick, and then all the deals that I'm seeing people do, like million dollar plus deals, whether it's small businesses or real estate, all have some sort of element to seller financing mm. or they're looking at seller financing. So what, uh, where have you seen seller financing come into play with like small business acquisition? Or you also said using, using um, private investors for capital too. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, so there's, there's three different ways you can really transfer your business. I'm being, I'm going to take it high level. We're talking 40,000 foot view to shove them into three big categories. Mm-hmm. One, if I'm the seller, you're the buyer, I can give you the business and then I'm basically loaning. I'm acting as the bank, right? To, to, to put, maybe I put a lien against the assets or if there's a building, I put a mortgage against it. If you have assets, UCC lien. Yep. I'm basically going to lien in any way and say, if you don't pay me back over this regular course, it. I'm going to come grab my stuff. That is yeah. the most risky to the seller and most advantageous to the buyer because now you hold the assets. I have to foreclose. Mm. That, is, that, that can be difficult. So that, that's the first one where the seller gives you the business and then accepts payments. Sure. All right. The second way is where I give you it pieces at a time. Now, you give me pieces of your business at a time. Exactly. Okay. Now, How does if, that work? If we're talking about an asset sale, because you have an asset sale or you have an equity sale, if we're talking asset sale, um, specifically real estate, it actually looks a lot like a land contract, mm-hmm. right? Because that is the land contract is this weird a- animal where you know the first few payments, yeah, I might be able to evict you, but then afterwards you're gaining this equity in it, but you don't get the legal title. You're getting an equitable title, right? You're getting an equity in the possession of this home, but you're not getting the physical title. I, as the seller, hold onto that title. Yeah. But at some point, when you pay about over 20% or whatnot, I have to actually foreclose on you now. Sure. So there's that point in time where, where and that's a, that's a land contract in a real estate aspect, but in a business aspect, it's like every year I'm going to give you 20%. You're going to pay me so much or you're going to do this work and then any amount over the amount that I'm paying you can be used. So I'm structuring your business right now that that does something like that where uh, and th- this is key where actually in the business, what we're doing is we're creating more shares to be authorized rather than me selling you the shares. There's mm-hmm. a number of creative ways you can do that in terms of buying the equity in a business, the ownership or the shares or the units in an LLC, however we want to call it, where you every year I'm giving you a little bit of that. And then you give me money and we can reassess the fair market value each year of the business, or we can lock in a strike price where basically it's locked yeah. in and you're doing that. I've seen that before. Buyers go, get the, the buyers can wrong. get the benefit of that. Yeah. Cause especially if you lock in a price that's, and then the property value shoots up a lot. Exactly. That can, so that, but that's, that's kind of a, a fair way to do it, but it's a lot more work mm-hmm. because that means you have to get a fair market value every year. Or if there's a strike price, even, yeah. even if there's a strike price, you still have to update all your documents every single year. And you have to work with the, with the ups and downs of your business in any way that there are, especially if you hit like a recession in some manner. Yeah. That can cause a problem. Right? So that, that's the second way mm-hmm. is where a little bit of time. And the third way is where it's almost like a rent to own type situation where okay. if, uh, if you don't pay me enough, then I'm just not going to sell you the business. Okay. Right. So yeah. I'm, I'm almost allowing you to build up the equity, but I'm holding all the control and, and mm-hmm. rights over the business. You're running it and you're going to have an opportunity, an option really. Right. But you're going to have an opportunity to then elect to buy that business from me if you do this at, if you meet all these requirements that's the most advantageous to the seller 
leased to the buyer. So is that like, okay, let's say I'm, uh, you know, for the first 12 months, I'm paying you rent to, you know, use the space, operate the business. And then after that 12th month, you know, maybe it's, Hey, I, I have the option to buy your business at yep. price. I've also seen in real estate. I've also seen like, um, uh, blanking on the word, but like basically like contracts to purchase, you know? So it's like, uh, you know, I, I ran into a guy that bought, uh, he paid actually it was within his self-directed retirement account where he paid hmm. he paid ten thousand dollars just to have the option to buy this piece of land for like half a million dollars in three years. Yeah, and then it turns out like the land in three years was worth like a million or one point two, and his IRA didn't have enough money to close on the land with a loan. So what he did was he just sold the right to the contract to somebody else for you know, whatever half the difference between five and 12 or 1.2 was. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I have this contract. You could buy this land for 500 grand. It's worth 1.2. Do you want it? It's going to cost you 250. Yeah. And so he took his $10,000 investment on the contract and turned it into 250 grand. That's an, I call it an option contract. Okay. And that, yeah, straight up. And because there's value to that and you make sure, make sure, make sure you get consideration for that option. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just like you give me an option. No, I'm going to pay for that option. Yeah. I'm going to put some money down and now there's this yeah. thing called consideration. So that's, that's binding and you can't back out of that. So you want to make sure, but you do want to make sure it's drafted right. And then the option is specific. And I've come across the uh, years, terms, years, terms, and then non-refundable um, or, cause I've also seen, you know, mm-hmm. earnest money will go towards the contract price. Uh, yeah. The money then gets flipped into the, the purchase, purchase price. price right. Yeah. Or if not, or then not. it gets kept. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, that's, that's huge. And then also are there, are there things that the buyer must meet in order to be able to exercise this option, especially if you have like a lease with an yeah. option, huge in there. I have, I've seen leases that they didn't have the option specified that the, the buyer can't be in default. Mm. So like this buyer was completely in default of their lease and you, and, and, but if that option was drafted separately, they still have that option. You didn't make a contingent on the default or the mm. compliance with the lease. They still have the option. They still have they the option. Flip it. It's separate, and they paid separate consideration for it. Yeah. Right. And so, oh yeah, oh no, no, we lost the lease, but I'm still going to exercise that option. In a couple it's of years. literally what's happening to the casino in Chicago right now. I think the people that they they try to buy the space, but the really? the tenant still has the like they have that contract in place for however many years. Yeah. And so they're basically strong arming the casino to not like give them a egregious sum of money yep. to. So, um, so with seller financing as a business owner, because uh, correct me if I'm wrong, in real estate, the the owner of the property typically has to hold the title free and clear, no no liens or loans, in order to sell or finance you a property. Or how does that work? No, if I'm a buyer, you know, I, I should I should do a title search and and make sure that what I'm buying. But I can assume I can assume your loans. I can assume the responsibility of your taxes. I can assume the responsibility of mechanics okay. liens. Now, if you assign it over to me and you have a mortgage on that property. You might be in breach of contract with your mortgage company, yeah, right, and they might do on sale. Do on sale. So if you have a business with a mortgage and you you sell or finance it to me, you could be in breach of your mortgage. Could be. In fact, the the uh, if you're not in open communication with your lender, yeah, they might call you on it. Yeah, it's it's not all the time. Don't get me wrong. Like they're not running out. They're not looking at the recorder's office every single day, right? I've even seen properties where the uh, there was a land contract recorded and a mortgage. And the, they never called it. Yeah. Did they talk to the mortgage company and the mortgage company was okay with it? Maybe, right? But at the end of the day, it's not a game that I like playing no. without the lender being at least on board or aware, which in business transactions, it's usually like if it's a rental or something like that, they understand that. They understand that. Or alternatively, instead of, this is a fun one where, and this is more, this is becoming more common. Instead of selling the real estate or the assets, 
I'm going to actually transfer it over to a holding company, and then I'm going to sell you the equity in the holding company. Hmm. What that does is two things. One, it severs your liability from my past, because a lot of times you don't want to do an equity buy because you're going to tie to assume, all my liabilities. Assume, yeah. Sign all, but if I signed it over to a separate holding company, now that separate holding company doesn't have any liabilities. It's brand new. And I sell you the equity in it. And one of the benefits of that is that it avoids the tax appraisal yeah. um, because now you don't see a transfer of that um, main of, business. Exactly. You don't see those the, that transfer. It's not recorded anywhere. It's rather all done on the back end. And it's all completely legal to be able to do that. Yep. Yeah. So when they, so like, let's say you have a, you know, plumbing business. Mm -hmm. So you would transfer, you know, every, all the assets, all the employees, everything's held in XYZ company. You would transfer the assets over to this, you know, it would just be the assets into that company. I would buy that equity in that company. And then, then that way there, I don't have to assume uh, the risk of whatever you've previously done or commitments. So like, let's say you fix somebody's toilet and right. you know, thing breaks, shatters to the floor, strikes and kills somebody, right? This shit happens. I'm not going to be liable for that because I bought assets from your, the other right. company. Yeah, right. Okay. Now I see it more often with real estate and non-operational okay. businesses. It's more of an investment type of strategy. Um, operations would be tough because your bank account set up in that name, right? You have the past ongoing responsibilities with your employees, set up all new payroll and set up all that. So I don't see that strategy done very often with, um, uh, with operating businesses. Mm -hmm. If somebody's going to buy into an operating business, Oftentimes, and including if there's seller financing involved, a lot of times I'll have either someone selling to their employees or somebody selling to like, um, you know, their son or daughter or something like that, who's going to take over the business uh, that I've done a lot. And they're buying into the equity of the business and they want to keep the operations going. And they, they know the risk. They've been working in that business. Right. So we're often talking about a third party sale if you're going to do that. And it's usually more of an investment rather than an operational. Um, so with the... So we talk about seller financing now. Let's just say, how how have you seen seller fi like as a buyer? If I mm. want to buy a company, how have you seen like seller financing tie in with like SBA and then also like your own capital? Because the the last RV park that we bought, it was um, like half seller finance, part SBA loan, and we only you know on a two and a half million dollar purchase price, we only had to come up with a hundred grand of our own money. That's fantastic. How have you seen those kind of interplay? Yeah. Together? Yeah, no, most certainly. Um, so when it comes to seller financing, it part of it's the sophistication of the seller and the openness of the seller. Sure. Yeah, uh, that's the hardest. That's what I tell people all the time. It's the hardest part. Yep. Is getting the seller on board. Or sometimes the seller's wife or husband on board. Sure. Right. There's a lot of times where the spouse is not heavily involved in the business and they're just like, no, just get a check. Or they're more risk adverse mm. because they're not the entrepreneur. So that's... that's I never so, thought of it that way, yeah. Building a personal relationship with the seller mm -hmm. and their spouse is actually a very tangible, critical way that, that you can help with facilitating seller financing. Take them out to dinner, buy them a gift basket, do, do something to build the relationship. If you're gonna be working with me as the seller for the next three, five years or whatever, right? We should probably have a better relationship than just this third you know, yeah. arm's length type of thing. I bought my second property with seller financing. Did you? Yeah. That's awesome. Back when interest rates were still super low. So I actually had to convince the guy to sell or finance it to me. So okay. the way that kind of looked like is I actually bought my first investment property. So I bought my first investment property with an FHA loan duplex from this guy. Yeah. And then I, after closing, he shoots me a text. He's like, Hey, I actually own like six other properties in the area. Are you interested? And I kind of told him, I was like, Hey, look, um, cause at the time I was still working W2 and I didn't have the DTI to 
Yep. So I said, Hey, I I'm interested in buying more property, but I, I don't have the, I can't get a loan for it. Like, are yeah. you interested in seller financing? And I still remember the text that he sent me. He goes, I don't know what that is, but I'm curious. Wow. And so I was like, Hey, let's go meet up at this uh, coffee shop. It took like, I want to say it was at least two, I think it was three uh, breakfasts together for me to explain to him why it was a good idea. Cause I was, yeah. I was like, Hey, look, man, you don't want to sell all six or seven of these properties in the same year. Your your capital gains tax capital is going to be super gains. high. Yep. I was like, and once you sell them, you know, you're not going to have another income stream. So yeah. they're they're gone. You know, you're going to have to figure out ways to get that money to work for you, and then it's going to get eaten away by inflation. I was like, how about this? You're you own house free and clear. You know, why don't you finance it to me, and you know, I could pay I could pay you back in ten years. And he we agreed on a you know interest rate, and then I was able to buy the my second investment property from him. It's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. And, and you know, it's a lot easier in real estate, yeah. especially with investment to do seller financing than it is to somebody, somebody's baby, right? Somebody's the thing that they've worked for 30 years to build up mm-hmm. in their operations and they know the employees, they know each one by name and they know their families, right? And they want to make sure that they're taken care of. It's, it can be a lot, lot more difficult, right? And so um, if you're, when you're talking about um, real estate investment, even then though, you still had to do that relationship aspect of it. And that was, that's awesome. No, that's awesome. What have you seen? So I know my mom's plumbing company just sold mm. and they have in the contract that basically, uh, I don't think any of it was seller finance, but in the contract, it basically stated that the current owner had to remain on payroll of the company for, I want to say it was two years. Mm-hmm. That's obviously, you know, cause he knows all the customers, employees. Yeah. Have you seen, you know, what kind of contracts have you seen drawn up like that? But then also I'm thinking too, you know, from, from an accounting firm perspective, you know, if, if I was to go buy somebody's CPA firm, you know, I'm not, it's not guaranteed that all those clients are going to stay. Right. So I might want to structure somewhere in the agreement where it's like, Hey, you're going to get X price and then you're going to get X amount of however many clients stay. What type of experience have you seen? Most certainly. And I'll, I'll hit on both of those. Uh, the first one being keeping the owner as part of the business is huge on certain, certain industries. Mm-hmm. specifically ones that, and a lot of construction, um, plumbing, right? Th- those aspects, a lot of times they are hiring because of the reputation of yeah, the builder you're, themselves. You're basically buying the rep the, and employees and the rep of that company. Yep. There are a few, there are a few that are big brand names and then they get hired because of the brand name. And so the owner is on the back and it's not, but that's not most businesses, especially when we're talking one to 5 million or even one mm-hmm. to 10 million. Like we're still talking about the owner being heavily involved. And a lot of times they are bought for that reason, which means if the owner drops, you lose those clients too. You lose those relationships, especially yeah. even with the vendors, right? But there's, there's so transitions, so many um, transitional periods. I mean, I wouldn't even do a seller financing or, or sorry, do a, um, uh, a sale of a business, whether they're seller financing or not, without the transition of an owner. That is required mm-hmm. by a lot, even equity firms, big equity firms will require the owners to stay on in some capacity and say they, they, they will not move forward unless the owner stays for a couple, couple years or a year. And that does come into play with compensation as well, though. So I'd say if you're looking to sell your business, you should have that expectation that you might want to stick around. Yeah. But let's move into that kind of aspect of, well, what kind of return does that buyer want to have? Mm-hmm. That's, going to be, that's going to be crucial as part of the discussion to say, well, if I'm going to continue to pay you for a couple of years, well, there's value that you're getting. And if that continues to decrease, if I don't get the clientele, what does that look like? Yeah. Right. And so de- part of that is depending on how you're, what type of business it is, because I can structure things. Your inventory is your inventory. I can parse that out. 
that has a value. We can put a fair market value on it, and that's not going to change based off of the number of clients that I ultimately sell that inventory to or not. Sure. Right? That we're talking about profit. So first thing I do is I'm going to kind of categorize that business, and I'm going to look at what is hard assets versus what am I buying in for your goodwill. Goodwill, yep. Yep. I mean, delineating that is going to be huge. And then for that goodwill, what is the value? I love looking at the multiples aspect of it, which is the high level way of doing that business valuation where I'm just going to take your EBITDA or something or your gross revenue. Multiply by a, yeah. For an attorney, it's going to be less than one because there's almost a guarantee you're going to lose those clients. One of your gross or EBITDA? Either. Mm. I mean, but really, because at the end of the day, people, I mean, I, I love CCSK. We've actually built up somewhat of a goodwill and brand. But at the end of the day, most of my clients still hire Isaac Carr. Yeah. Right. And I, and so I know, understand what you're saying when you're saying making that transition into promoting the the brand. And we've done that. We're, we're working on it. There's people who call because they've heard about good things about CCSK law. But there's still most of my clients that come through referrals. They still come to me. So if I were to sell that. Yeah. Right. Uh, they're going to they're going to lose Isaac then they're going to lose the business for the most part and so your multiple right one would mean i'm going to keep exactly on the same track a multiple of one means i'm going to be on the same track as i was before you're not going to be you're going to lose those clients yeah. and so how do you compensate that in revenue well you can the most dangerous thing a seller can do but you can do it is a clawback provision say i'm going to pay you this but if mm. right you got to pay me back Alternatively, you got to pay back the difference, either yeah. based on a percentage or, or a certain dollar amount in some manner. The other thing that you can do is escrow. You can say, okay, we're going to hold this amount in escrow and it's going to pay out based off of this proration, right? Sure. This amount actually closed on the business that, that, or if we overperform, hey, well, cap it out, right? But maybe you give them a little bit of the benefit of that too, yeah. right? If they're going to take that risk with you, if the seller's going to take that risk with you, then there should be some reward to compensate. So looking at that, an escrow is one way to do it. It's probably one of the more fair ways to do that. Yeah. All right. And so, so those many are ways you ways. could structure it. So many ways. How do you run into issues? Because I know Illinois, for example, is like an at-will employment state, mm -hmm. or you know, so they, you know, you could. How does that? How does that requirement to then you know put the previous owner on W two? That typically, like, let's say you know, I sell my CPA firm to you, and the contract states I have to work there for two years, and I dip out after a year. I'm I'm a, I'm voiding contract because. Yeah. Um, even though I'm technically an employee now in that business. Yeah. Yeah. You'd yeah. be in breach of contract. I, yeah. I've contracted with you, right. To say that you're the owner and I bought the business from you and I've contracted with you to stay on for two years. Yeah. But now you're ducking out, right. You have now breached the purchase agreement in that manner. Now, are you still at will? Yeah. There's no As in, a W two. Yeah, you're still a, you're still an at will employee under a W two. So like, yeah, you can leave the job. In but America, you're... we're not going to force you into indentured servitude. That's yeah. that's not, we don't we don't allow slavery here, and that good thing, right? Um, but on the other side, to say that you still have caused me damages, mm -hmm. right? So there's just consequences for your action. You don't have to work there. Sure. But just understand, you're going to have to pay if you don't. Mm -hmm. What uh, with uh, ten to twelve million small businesses up for sale in the next five to seven years. What are you doing? What are you doing about that? One of them was getting my commercial real estate license. Oh, <laughs> uh, I've noticed that um, when I'm to broker to sell. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I was working on everything from, you know, helping the purchase, the due diligence and the closing, drafting the documents, getting whether that was for business or for real estate specifically. But a lot of times these businesses have real estate involved in some manner, but I wasn't help. I wasn't, I wanted to do it the right way. And I couldn't help these people find the real estate or list their real estate as part of the business transaction, mm -hmm. 
without and so I have now got my commercial real estate license. I've done that underneath um, of, of Haven Realty, and we have this joint venture now with the law firm and, and Haven Realty to be able to be prepared because I'm I know what we're talking about here and what's coming. And to say to ignore the aspect of real estate would be actually a devalue to my clients yeah. it'd be a disservice and so those mm. are that's one of the things is preparing myself in that manner but also building a good network of people i mean again it's just being able to service those clients to the best way possible so that when you know have that bucket ready so that mm-hmm. when 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 people start coming in you have a good funnel to filter them out correctly so you find the people that you want to work with and then have that bucket underneath to catch it with the good referral sources and being able to best service your client Wow. So when you do a transaction, like let's say a client owns a business inside of a commercial real estate building, mm-hmm. and assuming they own the real estate, they own the business, let's say they don't rent the real estate out to anybody else. When you're doing that deal, you're separating like, hey, what is this commercial asset worth on its own? You know, what are the comparable rents in the area? What's the NOI? What can I back into a cap rate? And then you're parsing that business off also? Or like when you're valuing commercial real estate, how does that work with inside of a business sale? Yeah, most certainly. So hopefully you've put the commercial, I'm going to talk to the camera here. Hopefully you have put that commercial real estate into its own holding company yeah, and separated it for the liability purposes from the business yeah. so that the valuation becomes a lot easier, right? Mm-hmm. There's three different ways that I do valuations with regard to real estate. I'll do comps, which is looking for the area, right? To do comparables of what else is sold in that, that way. Um, I can do an income approach, right? Mm-hmm. Or discounted cash flow. Uh, and then there, then the final way is going to be um, looking at the, um, uh, the you can do replacement value or build value, right? Book value, value. Yeah. yeah, right. T- taking that and can, right after the depreciation, yeah, right? and saying, okay, well, what does that look like? And then sometimes I'll take a weighted average of those and and make a determination if I wanted to really do it right. You can do a similar thing with the business too. I can do a discounted cash flow for a business oh, right? all the time, right? I, yeah, and you can do a and you can definitely do a comps approach. Sometimes it can be difficult. You have to go farther back depending on how specific it is. But you know, if you got my, one of my hotel clients. That's not too difficult. You have the hotel, which is, um, you know, the real estate's inseparable from the operations of the hotel, right? So you take a look at the hotel and you say, okay, well, what's the value of the real estate within itself? And you separate out and you say, what's the cash flow of the operations? And you're able to do a valuation based off of just the operations and the commercial real estate. And then sometimes the owners will keep the property and rent it back. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they will sell off both to two separate. That's, That's the rarest. Or sometimes they'll sell them both to the same. Right. And so there's a lot of lot that you can do. You have a lot of flexibility in that way. But I said the most common is probably to sell both or as part of like your retirement aspect of it, you sell the business and then you just keep renting to them. Yeah. Wow. Man, this has been awesome. Where can uh, listeners of the podcast get in contact with you and your firm? Uh, yeah. Well, we are um, uh, ccsklaw.com. That's a uh, um, Charlie, Charlie, Sam, Keith, law.com. And my email is pretty straightforward. It's Isaac at CCSKlaw.com. So um, my uh, Isaac is spelled in the biblical fashion, I-S-A-A-C at CCSKlaw. Or you feel free to call in. Right? You all can call in at 219-230-3600. Uh, like I said, we're located out of Valparaiso, downtown Valpo. Um, love being there because you can walk to the restaurants and whatnot. Uh, and, but uh, we work within the entire northwest Indiana region. Uh, but frankly, I've got clients down in Indianapolis. I have clients out in California and both mm-hmm. coasts, right? Because real estate investment goes all over the place. Yep. But so do businesses. So, yeah, um, that's probably the best way to reach us is through email or just calling in. Mm-hmm. 